Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Danny. Hey, hey. I, I hear you uh, revisited a, a cult a cult underground uh, classic recently and, yeah. and, you, and you want you want to give it the the prominence it deserves. You probably haven't heard this movie, but I've been rewatching I believe it's pronounced The Lord of the Rings. I don't know how can you mispronounce <laughs> yeah. that. Lord, the words Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um it's the first time I've watched the extended editions. I was like they're already pretty long, but they need to be longer. I'm sure there's every single thing they cut out was actually vital to the film. And Some people swear, it. swear by those extended editions. Those people are idiots. See, see, so. see them as definitive. <laughs> it reminded me of when I read the books as a little boy, a little boy reading Lord of the Rings. And I'd always skip past all like the poems and songs because I was like, you know, I get it. He spent a long time inventing an entire language and there's, you know, all this rich history. But I'm more excited about the plot and stuff, which yeah. is definitely the take the theatrical cuts of the movies do but in the extended edition there's just a lot more about the elves so much stuff about the elves and the undying lands and arwen's gonna leave and then she's not gonna leave and and i think those are the most like high fantasy bits of the movie as well they're all like a bit soft diffusion lighting and like glades and it's almost borderline parody of itself those scenes the one scene i did think they were wrong to cut out was there was more of the cockney orcs which i'm a huge fan of you're late. Our master grows impatient. He wants the Shire Rats now. I don't take orders from Orc maggots. Saruman will have his prize. We will deliver them. Anyway, all that stuff is great because I just like the conception of like... I mean, it's a bit classist, really, in its own way. So you prefer the lower-class coded orc characters rather than spending time with the upper-class coded elf characters? Exactly. I'm a fucking... You're, <laughs> you're, a, man, you're a man of the people. Man of the people. Yeah. That's why I'm team orc. <laughs> yeah, yeah this got a little more... the time the orc had come. Exactly. Have you seen them? Extended editions? Um, I have watched the extended edition. I remember watching the extended edition of Return of the King on a, a disastrous date. When I was like 16 years old. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I was in, I was in a, I was in a relationship that was like on, on the, on the outs, I would say. And when we just like sat down to watch the entirety of <laughs> the extended edition of return of the King. And it was, you know, I mean, it's long, probably even if you're in the, the full bloom of new, of new romance, but for <laughs> when the atmosphere is a little, you know, cold, then it gets it gets really long so um did you find like the themes of the movie sort of chimed with where you were in your relationship 
What, in Return of the King? You know, the in fellowship. What, <laughs> what, it's breaking up. It's and, breaking and, up. Uh, Frodo's uh, dying. <laughs> yeah, I felt like, like Frodo, that relationship was uh, <laughs> setting sail, taking that boat to heaven. Um, Masterpiece. Anyway, Danny. You must watch. When you're not recommending these like, little films that need wider exposure, we're sitting here talking. What's the deal? Please explain the premise of this podcast. Happily. I'll, happily, I'll do that. That's an interesting way to start. That's how people talk. Happily, Happily. I shall do that. (laughs) I'm not a boss. (laughs) So, Film Chat, very simple to explain, is a podcast all about uh, Sam Foster. That's you. You're a one-time welterweight boxing champion who now lives in Canada with your son, Moses. Your other son, Danny, feels that you never really cared about his dreams and ambitions. And as such, you have little affection for me. I have a little affection for you. However... My teenage son, Michael, doesn't like me either. You know, chain of uh, father-son difficult relationships. Sam, you want to retire to a ranch in northern Canada, but you can't afford the property. However, you remember that you threw a fight years ago and was paid off with a big cache of diamonds that you hid somewhere in Reno. So somewhat dubiously, we all go on a road trip to help find your diamonds. On the way there, you convince us to visit a local brothel run by Madam Cindy, so you can have sex again because you haven't since your wife died eight years ago. And my teenage son, Michael, also loses virginity at this brothel. Mm, okay. Um, following this quest, we find the hidden diamonds, we reconcile, and, um, you know, we learn about what's really valuable, diamonds <laughs> or relationships. Is what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the classic 1999 film, Diamonds. This is, in fact, a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran, and joining me, my horny dad who wants to live in Canada, Sam, Sam Foster. Hello, Danny. On this week's episode, we review a trio of stressful films that seek to induce various forms of unrelenting discomfort and anxiety in the viewer. First up, we look at the Safdie brothers' latest, Uncut Gems, which, like their previous film, Good Time, is a white-knuckle ride through seedy New York. Stars an extremely talkative and perpetually grinning Adam Sandler as a diamond dealer whose life teeters ever more precariously on the brink of collapse thanks to his compulsion to make bets and deals in search of the ultimate win. It's exhausting. Plus, I will be reviewing 1917, the first World War epic from Sam Mendes, in which a ceaseless tracking shot follows a pair of young soldiers on a quest to deliver a life-saving message across deadly war-torn France. Not a relaxing experience. And finally, Danny and I address a listener complaint by looking back at one of the big films of last year that we overlooked. Ari Aster's sunny folk horror, Midsummer, which works hard at maintaining a constant sense of dread and impending doom. Not cool. These intense cinematic experiences, uh, of course, have left us looking for some respite, something chill that will in no way upset or annoy us. So we will also be taking a great big sip of coffee and checking the Oscar nominations. All that should leave just enough time for me to announce my latest film project. My own migraine-inducing nightmare, entitled The Man Who Forgot to Wear Trousers to the Job Interview. It's all filmed in a single, continuous take, a virtuoso masterpiece, one very slow-moving tracking shot that just pads like a predator across the screen. It, there's, the, the, the score is like this deep, low tone that sets this feeling of dread in your belly and makes you want to shit yourself the, the entire time the film is on. It's it's intensely serious, powerful piece of bravura <laughs> cinema uh, that I think is really gonna uh, be a calling card for me um, in 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 the, on the world movie stage. I think it's gonna it's gonna really make my name. It sounds good, man. 
films, 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 lots of films, 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 films. He's good films, bad films, fun films, sad films, films we love, weird films, Lars von Trier films, old films, new films, some John Woo films, films that star Peter Fitch, films by David Lynch, films short, films six hours long. We've got films up to your gills with films, 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 movies. Are you feeling comfortable? Film chat has begun. We're going to break with uh, our standard structure, jump straight in to review. Uncut Gems. <laughs> Always finishing each other's sandwiches. So, Uncut Gems is a new film from Josh and Benny Safdie. As you mentioned, previously made Good Time and had a huge splash of that. That was a real, even though they made previous films, that seemed like the one that like kicked them into the A-list directors and has finally arrived on UK shores. It stars Adam Sandler in one of his periodic proper roles. Like It feels like every once in a while he does like a, a dramatic role and then it gets hugely acclaimed and it just makes you know, a bunch of Netflix movies. He just relies on auteurs who have fondness for him from their childhood to yeah, occasionally give him a call. Quite possibly. So it is about a compulsive gambler and diamond dealer called Howard Ratner, played by Sandler. And the less you know, the better. But basically he owes some people some money and in order to pay them off, he has got a scheme which involves selling a uncut gem of the title, a Ethiopian diamond. A black with, opal. A black opal. And this, his sort of plan to sell it involves him uh, sort of wheeling and dealing, selling one thing, hawking another thing. And it's set in 2012, and a big piece of the plot is the NBA playoffs that are happening. And Kevin Garnett, KG, the sort of biggest basketball player at that time, and the game's... Uh, he's playing in is a big focal point of the movie and whether, you know, his performance is linked <laughs> to the power <laughs> of this gem. Exactly. Uh, here is a clip. Check this out. I don't know. All right. So these are black Jews. All right. They're stranded in the middle of Ethiopia. It's deep. Stranded? Yeah, look at They got nothing. They don't got cars. They don't got And I'm watching this and I'm like, what the are these guys wearing? Look, it's on the Torah there. It's everywhere, right? Just where do these guys get precious black opals that's what that is a black opal i do my research these guys live near the whalo mines which primarily is red opals which aren't worth oh, okay? okay but these, these mm. yeah, you can't get your hands on these things you understand really so look i say to myself how do i get a hold of these guys and i managed to track these guys down i buy one from them Holy that is, <laughs> what is that that's right here that's the rock uh, i thought this was great I mean, everyone's is you know the thing about uh, the things a bit annoying about these kind of awardsy movies or like ones that have done really well. Is by the time they come to the UK, everyone said it's like a masterpiece five thousand times. And what are we supposed to contribute to the conversation? Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's, it is. It's only fun when we hate the movies. <laughs> exactly. It's very similar to Good Time. It's very clean, made by the same people. Where it's just got this barreling energy to it. A lot of the reviews have been like it's an anxiety-inducing. Uh, white knuckle ride like you, there's no way like go and take an ambient before you the movie starts or you'll die uh which is maybe overselling it's like <laughs> but it is very it's just got a very pleasing structure where his constant schemes much like robert patterson's character in good time he's constantly like in a hole and trying to get himself out of it and you know he has a plan that plan goes wrong he thinks of another plan 
And in a very sort of screenwriting 101, there's like a sort of dramatic goal to each scene and the stakes constantly shift and escalate in a way which is just incredibly gripping. And I also think on a part of that is that it's quite true to human nature in that it's like you're in love with somebody one day and then you have a bad day and you hate them. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, you realize you love them again. Does that make sense? Like this kind of strange, like people are not one set thing. Yeah, sure. Which rather than the character being inconsistent, just makes them all feel very like alive and like human. You know, they feel like real people. And like part of the Safdie brothers thing is mixing like unprofessional actors with real people. And they're often compared to like kind of 70s filmmaking style, which I think just means it just has people who don't look like people normally in films. So it kind of boils down to is like people who've looked like they've lived. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the real achievements of of the Safdie brothers is... is, uh, evoking such a living and breathing world and their use of non-professional actors including like famous celebrities who are not actors certainly contributes to that they, they've, they've got this quality i mean listen to a couple of um, interviews with them and they in the way that they talk they have that similar kind of like pulsating energy like restless you know just talking all the time this is an unbelievably talky film like the script must be insanely long. Yeah. <laughs> the movie is like two hours or something. And uh, it's just like chat abs- uh, happening absolutely constantly. But it's it's not just that like the movie is constructed in a way that that, that sells a kind of convincing culture or, you know, in, in, w- in which these uh, characters live. But it's also like every single person, like they, they are obviously excited to put this person on screen, you know? Yeah, yeah. They have this sort of love for this, for like every single like character in the film and this real care and humanity towards them. And uh, I think that that just sells the world so convincingly that whether someone, I mean, a comment that I heard someone else make about the movie is like every random character feels like there could be an entire film that's made just about them. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that is that sensation you get watching the film is like a tribute to what what incredible world builders they are. And this is obviously they're kind of writing about what they know in some sense. Like they're passionate about basketball and they live in New York and they know New York. Um, yeah, and they've they, but they clearly put in an enormous amount of effort into like dressing everything and and selling everything, and because it's so kind of relentless, it has an almost improvisational feel. In that everyone's talking over everybody all the time, and it's it feels it's this sort of like lived in world. I, I think there is something about having like scenes where there's maybe five or six people and they're all constantly talking that kind of gives off this vibe of like we just set the camera here and we started filming because you know yeah. when you're in a busy place, everyone is talking over everyone else. Uh, but I don't think there was very much improvisation in the movie. I think it's just like incredibly densely written, incredibly carefully constructed. And I think that by comparison to other sort of very um, auteurish uh, directors, um, like people like, I don't know, like Paul Thomas Anderson, who I know they really admire, or like the Coen brothers, who make these very constructed feeling films you mm. know that are that have a sense of like grandeur to them that are sort of stately i think like most big directors are kind of like that actually yeah um like the the amount of craft is kind of very obvious in the way that the film puts itself across and a lot of like more hack directors who are trying to who are trying to come across as you know like real voices kind of imitate that and the safties are kind of going the other way like they're they're making a film that feels sort of small and and intimate, but it has just as much kind of care and like craft and sort of there's it's it's as, as impressive a piece of work as you know I don't know like whatever like Paul like PTA movie like yeah, the, ma- yeah. the master or something, but it doesn't it doesn't it's not selling itself as prestige. Like, yeah, yeah, quite the opposite, um, and that's part of what makes it so refreshing. Yeah, and it's just a tour de force from Adam Sandler. He's amazing in it. 
And I think, well, it's no surprise because when he's asked to do like a dramatic role, he usually aces it. But I think what makes him so good and why he's such a sort of good foil for the character is and why when he's, you know, on form in his comedies, he has this kind of manic energy. I think like it reminds me of someone like Jonah Hill or Melissa McCarthy, where like when they get angry, they seem like they genuinely are angry. And Howard is such a sort of self-destructive force. I think this will make maybe good acting is just like if you have like a touch of crazy about you. Yeah. Like that sort of high energy performer. And uh, I saw like a very kind of glowing but quite snarky review of like Adam Sandler's performance where like his sort of career is sort of defined by sort of like laziness. He feels like he's sort of churning them out and just going to warm weather locations to, you know, pay his friends some money and Netflix will pick up the check. And so it's kind of great to see him in a role where he's so driven. It's like he's really turned up. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's, I don't know, he just, he, it does a good job of, he's so self-destructive, but you're still rooting for him, even though he's his own worst enemy. You feel like that could easily just be like, oh, fuck this guy, he's an idiot. But I, I don't know, I was so team uh, Howard, like, even though he's not the nicest of person, he's like this total deadbeat dad, terrible, <laughs> but he is in many ways a terrible person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, yeah, I think it's, well, there's a lot of humor in the movie. I think that's part of what makes, it's, makes it's it very Jewish. Endearing. I think it, the thing it reminds me of most is like Kirby enthusiasm where it's like Jewish guy encounters people who are like massively unreasonable and has this sort of like trials of Job aspect to it. Or it's yeah. like one man can't catch a break, but he is also the person who's causing who generates. Who, who generates it. Yeah. Like there's a reason everybody's angry with you. It's like the Kurt Vonnegut thing. Give your character, give your audience one person to root for and then put them through hell to show them what they're made of. Yeah. It's just like the movie kind of lives by that maxim and it's just super effective. It's it's also, all, sorry. sorry. No, no, go ahead. It's also similar to Good Time has this like phenomenally propulsive score, which I feel like if you could put any footage like and just slap this score on it, just become the most intense thing in the world. I don't know. Yeah, it's a very it's a very stressful watch, but it's very fun. I mean, it's very fun and rewarding. Yeah, I it's think, very like, easy to recommend because it's like it's just such a blast. It's like, not like it's not like hard to watch in a kind of cheap way, you know, like like gore, like incredibly uh, gory horror films can be when they're just like trying to shock you and you know make you squirm. It's um it's hard to watch in a way that's just sort of satisfying. You know, you come out of it tired, but it's like having done some exercise. <laughs> you're kind of you know it feels good as well. Yeah. Um and uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, highly highly recommend it. You you'll know you've had a night out of the movies after going to watch it. Absolutely. Like you can't possibly sit through this film and feel nothing. <laughs> <laughs> if you do, you're dead. You're dead. You're dead inside. Um, and it's great that it's a hit as well. Like this movie is is having is having real success. A good time, like obviously got attention, but I don't think it like set the world alight. And uh, uncut gems, like I don't yeah. know, it seems like it's immediately entering sort of classic status. Like everyone's quoting it. And, yeah, like, yeah. I think it's replaced like Phantom Thread as like the like meme film Twitter joke sort of generator. Yeah, absolutely. Like whatever the yeah. current situation is, it's just like a gif of like Adam Sandler. Like I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Like I disagree I isn't even. I disagree. That's not like why is that an iconic line? I disagree. Yeah, that's good. I don't know. The more I'm talking about it, the more I like it. Just think about it. It was great. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. It's 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 great. That's very good. It's very good. Highly recommend. Go see it at the Prince Charles. It's the only place in London with a 35 millimeter print, and it's the cheapest place to see it. Don't go to Pitch House Central or any Pitch House chain. Absolutely, I, I endorse that recommendation. See it at the Prince Charles Cinema, like we did, and we we had a blast. Maybe if you see it at a different cinema, the movie sucks. It also feels appropriate because that's such a sort of like old grindhouse cinema, and it's like this. It's such 70- a it's, it's such a Prince Charles movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you know me, you can borrow my membership. Just just DM, slide in my DMs.
slide into Danny's well if you know Danny you probably don't need to slide into yeah. his DMs it'd be a bit weird slide, slide into his text like, messages this guy's seen uncut gems like 14 times in a week <laughs> it's like he's obsessed he's obsessed I mean it definitely is it's a film which will be some like quite a lot of people's favourite movie immediately yeah it's playing to a certain you know type I think and uh, there will probably will be people who will see it 14 times in the cinema you know they've got a hankering for Maximum Sandler Sandman Maximum Sandman Oh, oh, I'm exhausted just talking about it. All right, let's move on. Superhero films announced, casting rumours leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated, Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated, Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped, Matt Damon's in a viral vid, Michael Bay's made a mint, that's the news that's fit to print. We've had the nominations and the ceremony in the case of the Golden Globes, so the sort of uh, some of the more minor um award season things but recently the big uh, daddy the big daddy c- ceremony Ooh, nominations big. landed for the oscars uh, the academy awards so we know we know what's up and they are pretty similar i would say a few surprises the group think is strong in the, the, the world of hollywood the big winner from the nominations is joker which has 11 uh, leading the field um, including all the standards you know best best picture best director and so on and behind that, with 10 each, are uh, 1917, shortly to be reviewed here, and Martin Scorsese's The Irishman and Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So it's the same uh, kinds of uh, names swirling around. It's opening itself very much to the same kinds of criticisms, lack of diversity, no woman nominated for Best Director, practically all of the uh, acting nominations are white again, it's very little diversity there. Uh, and in general, it just seems like a relatively conservative um, set. The only thing, as in previous ones, that kind of stands out is uh, the attention given to Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, which is obviously, you know, the movie people are noticing because other people are talking about, I guess. I mean, I'm sure it's, it, I know that you've said it's excellent and, and everyone loves it. I'm sure it is extremely good. But there's there's room for just like one movie that would otherwise not be that widely seen to sort of catch some kind of wind, you know. Yeah, well, it's done phenomenally done well. And I think it's the movie everyone, nobody hates, perhaps. A bit like Uncut Gems is just like such a blast of a film. Like, you could watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and be like, that's too long. Or uh, same with The Irishman or whatever. Movies, These movies are too long. These movies, I didn't like this, that. But like, Parasite is the biggest crowd pleaser, I would say, of that list. Mm. Oh, and it's also, I'd also know that Little Women is getting a Best Picture nomination. And uh... this is part of like the Oscar thing where they've expanded their, you can have up to 10 best picture nominations so you just like throw in a few names just for like i think that's how they up their diversity quota which is why it's so galling that they haven't because that's like the way to do it it's like these are the films that we're actually thinking about and we're also nominate some films with some more black faces in them just so we seem less racist but they haven't even done that (laughs) yeah i mean to be honest like yeah exactly jojo jojo (laughs) rabbit and ford versus Ferrari do not fit those they do not add any diversity at all yeah something i found funny people talk about this a lot about uh, Hollywood loves movies about themselves and uh, for example like the best actor leading role like Whacking Phoenix plays a struggling stand-up entertainer Adam Driver plays a theatre director <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio plays a struggling actor Antonio Banderas plays a movie director <laughs> and John Wright Price is the Pope the Pope is the outlier there and for like the best actress in a leading role Rennie Zellweger is Judy Garland's singer-actress Charlie Theron is like a news anchor, sort of in the entertainment business. Scarlett Hansen is an actress in Marriage Story. That's true. Yeah. Saoirse Ronan is a writer trying to sell a story. 
and Cynthia Revo is Harriet Tubman. So like, yeah. there's one outlier in the category which isn't about the industry somehow. Yeah, it's just like kind of comic, like almost a parody of itself. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is that is uh, extremely she. But it's a bit of a just generally unexciting and uninspiring list. And maybe it's not like there's there's not like that one movie to really root for that you think might do it like there was with Moonlight. Now, that was genuinely thrilling when Moonlight won Best Picture. Yeah. Well, we're doing this quiz about the Oscars. Yeah. If you haven't got a ticket, I'm sorry. It's sold, sold out. Um, and it's just weird. Just you're like, oh, that film won or like that person's won an Oscar. Like all these films on the list is like, remember like Moneyball? That was nominated for Best Picture. It's like not particularly the baseball thing. And, you yeah. know, like every year I rewatch two films, Lawrence of Arabia yeah. and Moneyball. Do you remember Argo? Remember the film Argo? One Best Picture. Remember Dancing with Wolves? That be Goodfellas. You know, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's mad the sort of films that win and then don't stick around and then you see what they beat or what wasn't nominated that year and it's just yeah the academy is bullshit it's not really a judge of anything it's total bullshit it's well, just a without fun talking it, point exactly yeah what would this fucking podcast be well, in january ten, 10 minutes of dead air right now i know thank god long live the academy god bless them <laughs> think of the content they're generating no host this year i think that's a good move yeah i mean apparently the viewing figures were up without a host last year which i find quite funny well, it's like just pe- more people will tune in at the prospect of there being nobody there who's like fucking annoying. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. And also, it's like lo- a lot shorter because I didn't have Jimmy Kimmel go and like patronize some normal people just trying to like watch a movie. But like, oh, look, there's Gal Gadot. Mm. I've made your life, haven't I? You've now, it's like, fuck Wait a off. second. <laughs> this front row of millionaires is now a soup kitchen. What? <laughs> this must be the best day of these homeless people's lives. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, fuck off. Very annoying. I know that's why but he did he did fuck off yeah he did so so it's got a happy ending that story it does doesn't it I've I've put two grand on Jojo Rabbit winning best picture oh yeah the odds odds were really good I put five grand (laughs) on Jojo Rabbit winning best picture (laughs) so inspired by uncut gems I immediately placed a series of like insane bets (laughs) (laughs) the first one I did was on Jojo Rabbit to win clean sweep yeah but Danny, that bet is crazy. I disagree. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Looks like Sam's got a film to review. He's just getting ready now. Hey Sam, here's a few tips for you that I hope are going to help you out. You gotta come prepared, try not to rush, speak directly into the mic. Um, don't sort of use filler words too much and try to avoid talking total shite. Okay, start reviewing now. Okay, 1917, another big Oscar-nominated film. It's got that Best Picture nom. It's got a bunch of other bunch of other nominations, also a big nominee at the BAFTAs. So now it's getting its definitive take on whether it's good or bad from me. Uh, directed by Sam Mendes, who made the last pair of uh, Bond movies, as well as American Beauty back in the day, and uh, various other things. Kind of originally a, a British theatre director, who then moved into film. He has co-written this movie based on his own family history, stories of uh, the First World War that were told to him by his grandfather, to whom the film is dedicated. Uh, and it follows a pair of young soldiers, Will Schofield, played by George Mackay, and uh, Tom Blake, played by Dean Charles Chapman, 
Uh, and they are given at the beginning of this movie a mission to uh, go from one set of trenches to another set of trenches in order to tell um, a, a particular division's um, captain uh, or whatever rank he is. What's the rank higher than captain? Sergeant? Sergeant? No, L- Sergeant's L- low. Lieutenant Corporal? Top dog. Major? Yeah, something like General? that. General? Uh, wait a second, it should be staring me in the face here. Um, Colonel. Colonel. <laughs> Uh, to tell a, a guy called Colonel McKenzie not to do this attack. The attack's a trap, so they've got to like travel in order to uh, save lives. Gotcha. Here is a clip of some war shit. Colonel McKenzie is in command of the second. He sent word yesterday morning he was going after the retreating Germans. He is convinced he has them on the run. But if he can break their lines now, he will turn the tide. He is wrong. Colonel McKenzie has not seen these aerials of the enemy's new line. Come around here, gentlemen. Three miles deep, field fortifications, defences, artillery, the like of which we've never seen before. The second are due to attack the line shortly after dawn tomorrow. They have no idea what they're in for. And we can't warn them. As a parting gift, the enemy cut all our telephone lines. Your orders are to get to the second at Kwasi Wood, one mile southeast of the town of Lacoust. Deliver this to Colonel Mackenzie. It is a direct order to call off tomorrow morning's attack. If you don't, it will be a massacre. We will lose two battalions, 1,600 men, your brother among them. You think you can get there in time? Yes, sir. Oh, mate, that warship sounded intense. It is intense. So the kind of, like, hook of this movie other than it being an epic war film with explosions and so on, is that it is all shown to you as if it was one continuous take. They, they did more than one take, but it's all been kind of stitched together so it looks like one tracking shot. I think like, rather than describing this as like a one-shot film, it's better, it's more, better described as an all-tracking shot film. Yeah. And it, the camera just sort of prowls around. And, uh, I mean, this has been done uh, a number of times before, probably most prominently and recently in uh, Birdman, which was also seemed like one shot, although obviously it wasn't. It was, you know, there was some wizardry used to to stitch together. And I guess like effects are at the point now where you can just do that quite effectively. Like, you know, yeah. and it's important to uh, recognize as well the, con- the contribution of the cinematographer, Roger Deakins, like probably the most kind of high profile and prestigious cinematographer working at the moment, whose imprint is very, very strongly on this film since it is so dependent on like how the visuals work. And every decision about how that movie looks was made while it was filming and prior to what it was filming. Like, you can't really change anything in the edit because you've already decided exactly sure, sure, how your sure. film is structured and everything like that. It's a sort of experience film. Like, watching it reminded me a little bit, like, more so than watching something like Birdman, it kind of reminded me of watching, like, Cloverfield or Gravity. Um, and, I mean, it's funny, like, you know that Scorsese made his, like, famous comments about the Marvel movies that they're not really cinema and, like, compare them to, like, a theme park. And I think... Films like this are like roller coaster rides, you know. I don't think I'm sure Scorsese would, you know, consider it cinema, but it is essentially something that like washes over you. It's it's not unlike I saw it at the IMAX, and it's not unlike whoa, you know, like IMAX did those like 3D presentations, which is like explore the tombs of the pharaohs or like go underwater or whatever, and it's just this like immersive, overwhelming experience. And this this film is a bit like that. It feels different to watching a normal movie. Or, you know, I don't know, normal or whatever. Like, like it's, it feels yeah. different to watching a regular film. 
An- another comparison I heard is that it resembled a video game because it has this totally linear structure. They didn't reuse any locations and you're just following these guys on this journey that basically begins like the very first frame of the film. Sure, you have a mission. And you he, must... travels, he travels through to the Does end. Does he collect like... objects? Um... <laughs> <laughs> Pick up a health pack or sort something? Sort of, yeah, he kind of does. It has these like clear kind of breathing points that do feel like checkpoints and then right, it has right. bits that feel like cutscenes because like there are games like the recent uh, ps4 game god of war was also all it's all in one continuous take so that when it goes into cutscenes, the film the game camera doesn't move it just kind of like smoothly goes into the cutscene, and then when it returns to gameplay it smoothly goes out of it and it, it still it has a bit of that feel yeah, to yeah. it like it feels somewhat unreal uh, and, it, and I would say it gives the films, you know, certain limitations, uh, but it also uh, gives it some strengths. And I think the, the biggest achievement of the movie is just that it looks great and it is fun to watch these guys navigate problems. You know, yeah. it's got a very, very simple structure. And I think like having uh, given themselves these uh, limitations there, they're operating within this particular world. Every single shot of the movie basically is going to be fixated on these soldiers as they're carrying out their mission and they're just going to encounter difficulties and have to overcome them. It's like a little adventure sure. thriller movie. And on that level, I thought it basically succeeds. And I think it avoided... I mean, the other, the other big influence is obviously Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, another kind of uh, ground-level, um, intense uh, war experience film that's focused on these like uh, not non-name actor kind of grunts who, yeah. who the sort of people who war chews up and spits out uh, and you're going to like make you know focus on them make them the, the the point of your entire film but like dunkirk lapses uh, right in the final sequence into this kind of like horrifically broad sort of like jingoistic yeah, know, yeah. celebration of england home, home and, and, and all that kind of like really really over sentimentalized nonsense which is um very associated with world war ii but like the earlier part of the film felt more like how world war one is treated culturally yeah like the sort of like the mainstream view of um of world war one i mean I, I saw it recently described uh, by someone on twitter as like the blackadder view i think that is probably how most people think of world war one as essentially as like world war two is essentially a glorious war for, from the perspective of the uk sure which there's we, like a moral dynamic there's to a it. moral dynamic we're fighting an evil um, foe that has to be destroyed and, and the fight is a noble one and in World War One, no one really knows why they're fighting it's kind of pointless you would probably say that the British are better than the Germans but like the real divide is between the the privates and like the higher ups who are throwing them in you know it's like the whole lines yeah, yeah, absolutely. thing and it, and it all takes on this kind of surreal pointless like horror quality and this version of World War One very much embraces that view you know and I would say, like, it's not very critical of the higher-ups, but it more presents it as just this crazy circumstance without any rhyme or reason or purpose that they're all just sort of existing in and trying to make the best of. Yeah. And that is preferable, I would say, to the jingoism that with which Dunkirk concludes. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the way that it's set up um, means that it is a bit shorn of some of the pretensions that that Sam Mendes often lapses into. There isn't any of that nonsense about like the greatness of England that he forced on Skyfall. I think he is a bit of a pretentious director, but here, just by the, by the nature of it being so focused on action and set pieces, it doesn't do too much of that. And I could, you, I think you can enjoy. Well, it just I, as an I guess his like pretension is just like the conceit. So it's not like he's showing off, but it's not. He's not like being didactic. You know, yeah, it's not like I'm trying to think of an example in one of his movies, like you know, the Tennyson poem, and that feels like Skyfall, yeah. 
you know, the movie stops a bit so you can do a bit of flag waving. Well, like, like Road to Perdition, for example, is a kind of cool gangster epic, which is, but it's it's straining to be more than that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not, it's sort of... It's so brown, that movie. It's so brown. <laughs> it's, it's sort of straining for a kind of, like, visual grandeur and, like, pathos that the material just cannot deliver to it. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Like, you're not just watching a fun gangster movie. It's not Gangster Squad, you know, it's like something that's... Not uh, the classic film Gangster Squad. It's not like the classic film Gangster Squad, which is a complete cartoon. You know, it's something more real than that. But, like, the material is cartoonish. So, like, the ambitions, you know, do not succeed. Um, and uh, and this film, I mean, there is certainly, a, you know... I, I, I would say that it's, it's not kind of uh, straining for anything greater than your standard sort of like horrors of war the nobility of the struggling guys out there doing their thing the kind of sentimentality of looking at those photographs of home yeah and, you know all that kinds of stuff like it's very like middle of the road and familiar and you know relatively inoffensive this, this might be a bit of a weird comparison but i kind of feel like certain directors like uh it's a bit like like steve mcqueen's best film was 12 years a slave because like he's found a material as serious as him <laughs> yeah and i feel like it's a similar thing with sam mendes like when he like i think uh, that's true like when he's he, like, found material as middlebrow as him yeah or like i think romeo plus J- juliet is something as like insanely melodramatic as baz lerman is <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like their thing isn't that good but they've just met the material which is best served by it yeah, Perhaps yeah. a little bit. I think there is a lot to that, you know? Like how the King's Speech is Tom Hooper's lane. Yeah, exactly. And Cats is like, as a couple of people have said, Cats is more like a Baz Luhrmann movie and you just got completely the wrong guy to do it. If it had been Baz Luhrmann, that might have been like a more successful film. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, yeah, in this film, Sam Mendes has definitely found like appropriate material for his like style and attitude. And uh, I, I found it quite enjoyable. It's relatively a... Uh, untaxing i mean you know albeit about like stressful war scenarios it's a pretty untaxing uh, watch it's just sort of fun to see see the action um and some of the sequences are i think well handled um and some of the shots are really impressively beautiful uh i will say that the the one take thing has moments where you really feel the strain of having to work around this conceit yeah. I mean, one of the things that it prevents you from ever doing is having a dialogue scene where you cut back and forth so you can see two people's expressions as they're talking to each other. That yeah. is almost impossible to sure, do. Sure, sure. Because uh, if they're not, if the camera is not kind of side on, which mm. has its own, like, there's its own dramatic language to having, it makes two people look opposed to each other, you know? Yeah. It kind of suggests a kind of opposition if, like, you can see both faces in the in the frame and they're kind of facing each other, if you see what I mean. Whereas like this more standard kind of over the shoulder dialogue shot or like you have one face and you cut to the other face, which is more neutral. You simply can't do that with a, with a one shot. Sure. So they have to like constantly think of like ways to kind of get around that and scenes where you, you would have someone doing something over there like miles away and then a reaction from someone who's really near to the camera. It would be no problem if you could simply put an edit in. But with a tracking shot, the camera's got to physically travel yeah, yeah, from, yeah. like from one person to the other. And that's like... A real pain you know so i mean it's a it is a crazy way to shoot a film in some respects um and i think sometimes it's like it's just like we have to keep this up you know and it doesn't really make any sense but at other times it, it does work and i think the score is also very effective scored by thomas newman and it's a very important part of the film because when you just when the whole thing is one shot the danger is that it just feels flat 
Mm. And you need a score kicking in to kind of tell you which bits are climactic and which bits are just normal because the camera is doing the same thing the entire time. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's used relatively sparingly. And I think it punctuates the movie in a way that's really, really effective. And it gives like a certain sense of climax to bits that, you know, I think works really, really well. Cool. So, yeah, I would give it a, I would give it a, a general, a general recommend. Much better than his Bond films. Was that like, was that like an army pun? You were like a general. I'd give it a strong. major thumbs up. <laughs> Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on, the guys are in, so let the chat begin. Start talking now. So, by popular demand, mainly from just one guy Tom Dewhurst Tom, Tom Dewhurst he was annoyed that we didn't see Midsummer's in cinemas didn't review it which he called the best film of the year yeah and like it was on a lot of people's lists you know there was a lot of buzz behind it so hot right now Florence Pugh is in it uh, and you and me are finally done what we should have done six months ago and seen Midsummer. so to briefly talk about the plot uh, Florence Pugh uh, is a woman in a state of grief and she has a really shitty boyfriend played by Jack Rayner. At the start of the movie, you get the sense that like there's not much life left in this relationship, but they're sort of basically still together. Nobody's pulled the trigger. Yeah. And uh, she accompanies him and his free mates to a Midsummer festival in Sweden, invited by one of their Swedish friends. And it's a strange kind of hippie place where people wear flower crowns and wear a lot of white and do a lot of strange rituals. And uh, you'd be surprised to hear, Sam. <laughs> doesn't doesn't all go. Doesn't all well. go to plan. Uh, here's a clip. Thank you. Thanks. Fuck. Thanks. Has anyone seen Connie? I think Mark's on her earlier. Pretty sure I saw her trying out for the sprinting Olympics earlier. What? Where? Sorry, but I can say what happened. Her boyfriend called the landline from the train station and calmed Connie down. And she begged our pardon and I drove her to meet him. Okay. That's really. Why would Simon leave without her? I'm sure it was just a miscommunication. So, um,. How do I put? I didn't like the film. <laughs> I don't not, not the best one, twenty nineteen. Not the best one, twenty nineteen. <laughs> I thought it was very boring, to be honest with you. And my, you know, if you really want to hear me talking for another ten seconds, my sort of uh, hot take about Ari Aster is that he makes films about relationships, but he has no interest in them. And this film is sort of about a couple coming apart at the seams. But I think you'd struggle to describe either of the characters other than they're a girl and a boy, and one's sad and one's a bit useless. And he's obsessed. I think his main bag is like rituals. He loves people doing stuff, but doesn't really give a shit about why they do it. And so like, there's such a sort of flimsy reverse engineered nature to the film where I feel like the climax was his, the whole idea. It's like, I've got to get to this great fucking climax I've got planned. And the characters feel so mechanical and in service of the plot. But the whole point is that it's about a relationship. So uh, he's made a film about people, but he doesn't like them. They're just like these robots automatons and it's very strange like because they enter this weird place but the main characters 
are weird. They don't react like normal human beings. They're characters who've never seen a horror movie before, which is weird. Well, it's, there are like minor characters who have seen a horror movie before. You know, it's funny, like, because there, there are other kind of newcomers to the festival who've been yeah. sort of, uh, invited in. And uh, like the way that they react to events is much more like, I feel like how the audience is reacting. Whereas like the main characters are just, you know, very weird and how, how they respond. Yeah, I just basically the movie's very long. So if you're not on board with it, as I was like the last like a uh, couple of acts, <laughs> acts two and three. Yeah. Just become very tedious. And I just found it unintentionally very funny. Like a lot of it. That was my main reaction to it. It was like, that's pretty funny. And, uh, <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure Ariasta's like, loving all this weird occult shit, but it just stuff happens. There's not, it's not very motivated. Mm. I, I don't think there was, like, a, a strong dramatic engine powering the film. And as such, I did not care for it. Uh, I think I liked it a little bit better than you, but I do, I do broadly agree. I had similar misgivings. I mean, to contrast it to Uncut Gems, like, that is a movie in which the whole thing is powered by the psyche of one man and his decisions that he takes at certain critical points in the film, like send it spinning off on this totally different axis. And it's interesting. I mean, another, another movie I would contrast it is something like, you know, I mean, it's, it's true for like a lot of classic horror movies, but it takes something like Get Out, where, you know, all the weird shit, like a guy discovers that a place that seems normal is actually full of like crazy weird shit. And then he comes up with a way to tackle it and deal with it. And uh, in Midsummer, that is, you know, the weird shit is is overwhelming and is kind of the main character of the movie there is this sense of like inevitability to everything and i think like that is that is kind of what he is going for you know it's like it's a sort of nightmare and it and it and it's it's sort of overwhelms and smothers you and that is what happens you know that's kind of like the, the mood of his movies but he is like if he is any character in his film he is the tony collette character from hereditary making those little uh, miniatures you know in that house and obsessively recreating her own life as these like elaborate creepy little miniatures and his movies are particularly midsummer is like this obsessive creation of these elaborate rituals and the characters kind of go there and like gawp at ariasta's work you know like they go in the in some sort of big building they've built for the festival that's covered in art and they're like whoa this is so cool and it's like someone put a lot of effort into designing this film and I think, like, that's the aspect of it that I did appreciate is that um, there is a real craft to it, I think. And there is a craft to, like, individual sequences and, and like, the, the way that the film is put together, I think, you know, shows, like, a great deal of skill. Um, and uh, there is, you know, real thought behind it. And it has, it has a, a strong character. But it is a little, it is a little tonally the same you know, it's 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 full of doom that is impending and then that arrives. And it definitely gives a, a climax to things like, you know, things go big. I like movies that kind of, you know, go don't, for it. don't peter out. They go for it. It's definitely puts all of its like, you know, shows all of its cards at the, at the, at the end of the movie um, in a way that I kind of enjoyed. Um, but, uh, but the human element is not, is not working as well. And it, I think it's also interesting to look back at Hereditary, which like had this, they promised this kind of intense family drama, which it kind of was for the first half and then gets very satanic at the end. And the family stuff is kind of like thrown to one side in this movie, the relationship aspects and the crazy cult rituals are at least on paper, more of a piece. Um, and I, but I think that that is partly happened through sacrificing some of the complexity of the human interaction drama 
and then like interweaving like a simpler kind of setup which is basically like shitty boyfriend and sad girlfriends you know playing out the end of their relationship in, into like the rituals but this but it still feels like you know at the end it's like she has some agency but broadly speaking the that stuff kind of goes away and in any case that it's so simplistic that it's like i don't really give a shit you know like yeah well maybe like i felt like the key thing about the movie was that they're going because one of the guys is an anthropology student right and it's about how cultures work and it felt like in ambition it was a bit like us in that it's a horror which is kind of talking about you know a very uh, huge scope to it but he just doesn't really have much to say apart from like things are a bit weird in Sweden you know like I felt like it was you know he really liked the fucking hems on the dresses and the cross stitching and the yeah and the it, buildings it is all about the, the pageantry the sort of creepy ass fucking insane pageantry of it and you know like some of that stuff i think is uh is is effective and well done i thought the score was really good i enjoyed how much music there was in it i liked how all the characters are constantly singing there's always like another little bit of like song or something and uh on a few of those like craft levels i thought it it, it definitely succeeds and showed, showed some skill but i didn't find it ultimately very satisfying yeah yeah. I think it takes a long time to say basically nothing. So <laughs> I was not a fan. Just buy, just watch The Wicker Man. That's like all these movies about like cults and shit. They're just like poor man's, a poor man Wicker Man. Yeah. I've got to, I think we should do, we, sh- we discussed this off mic and I think we should do the, the thing of like, uh, I catch up on a movie every week and we talk about it. Yeah. Watch The Wicker Man. I will watch The Wicker Man. I caught some of it on TV and I was loving it. So, yeah, yeah. I was, I was, I thought it was, I was really enjoying it. I was like immediately, like this is brilliant. It's only like ninety minutes as well, not two and a half hours long. Yeah, I know. I was, it was. I, I found it interesting watching Midsummer because, in a way, it just felt like it confirmed some of the weaknesses of Ariasta from Hereditary, and uh, you know, I found that satisfying. It was like I had a theory about you, and this has been tested in your new movie, and it was confirmed. <laughs> the real anthropology student was you, exactly. and the subject was Ariasta. <laughs> exactly. I'm, so le- you, I'm learning about you. You happy, Tom Jewhurst? Was it worth it? Six months to hear a shit on your favorite film. I'm sorry that we didn't like it as much as you obviously did, but I'd be interested to to know. You know, let's let's hear the the case for the for the defense. Absolutely. For Midsummer. My favorite film stars Bridget Bardo. She's the queen, but she wants to be in radio. So she starts a podcast with her friends, and the terrorists try to stop her, but she beats them in the end. Danny. Hello. We talked. We've recorded the talking. It's been broadcast. Uh, what's coming next week? Do we have anything uh, that we're going to watch? We don't know. I don't know, mate. Well, yeah, fucking I, don't, I don't fucking know, do well, I? That's good, that's good, you know. That's nice. It's just, it's just a surprise. Just, we'll just, just see what happens. Yeah, we've got to write this quiz, you know. We've got a quiz to write. I want to catch up on this film Atlantics that Chris said was good. Hey, we, we, just, could, we could do a little Netflix. Netflix. a Matty Diop film. Yeah. And there's also... Um, uh, I lo- is it called I Lost My Body? That animated oh, I've movie seen about that. the hand. That's that, pretty good. We could, watch that, we could review that as a kind of catch-up movie. Watch Two Popes. <laughs> I don't want to watch The Two Popes. One, one pope new, just, the new pope I'll only watch one pope you one know, pope at a time if that film was called one, the one pope or the pope yeah sure two popes that just sounds exhausting it's quite, quite amusing that the sequel to the new pope the Paolo Sorrentino Jude Law uh, you know hit show from a couple years ago there's like a new sequel called like the other pope like John Malkovich <laughs> so it's like 
it's like the sort of very stately, you know, Vatican-approved version of, like, the right. popes. And it's like the sort of sexy, crazy Italian auteur. They're all, like, you know, they're all a bunch of atheists, like, boozing and taking drugs and stuff. Like, the other pope is, like, it's kind of great. Um, I don't know. It just looks boring. I don't want to watch those two old men chatting about religion and stuff. Don't care. I want to watch her hand trying to find its body or something. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the plot of I Lost My Body is. When I watched Adam's Family, I was like, I want to know more about that hand character. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, all right. All right. Okay. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Goodbye. But I did have a, an earring, uh, a left earring, when I was young, and uh, I did the movie Airheads when I was a kid, uh-huh. when I was young, and and, uh, and um, in the in the script it said I had an earring, so I said, ah, maybe I just get an earring. And so I don't have to change, every, like get a fake earring every day. Let me just do it that, pierce my ear, blah, 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 blah. I didn't think it was a big deal. So I pier- pierced my ear and then I remember calling home. My mother answers the phone, hello? And I was like, hey, my, it's Adam. What happened? I was like, nothing, something's wrong. I said, no, nothing's wrong. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to tell you, I got a, I got a, you got a what? <laughs> I got it uh, in the left, in the left, in the left ear. You didn't, you didn't. I did, I got an earring. Oh, you can't be buried with us. I go, what? Isn't that a, isn't that a tattoo? <laughs> is, that, is that the rule how it goes? Yeah. In her head, in her head. <laughs>